1 Corinthians chapter 10 and uh, starting from verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and they were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, free from idolatry, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? But because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a, a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat what is ever put, eat what is ever put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the man who told you and for the conscience's sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the Church of God even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so they may be saved. Thank you, Tim. In fact, I wish you were preaching this morning. (laughs) 
Dan certainly need, uh, chooses his days off, doesn't he? He really does. We've been on this uh, journey now for about 11 weeks, um, and we are studying together 1 Corinthians, and uh, this is a, a letter that was sent to a church in an ancient city of Corinth in Greece 2,000 years ago. And uh, as we've discovered, the uh, Corinthian church was certainly a church that had a love affair with problems. And uh, we've discovered that over a number of weeks now. And that's the title of our series, as you, as you know. These Corinthians were certainly living in a city full of uh, immorality. But instead of standing as uh, beacons of light in this ancient sin city, they became almost indistinguishable from those who were not Christians. And Dan has told us in recent weeks that there are three ways that we can um, uh, sum up the, the church there in Corinth. They were intellectually proud, they were materially prosperous, and also they were morally corrupt. Uh, in the first six chapters, Paul challenges the, the Christians in Corinth to actually behave as though they are followers of Jesus. And uh, he had heard things about them on the grapevine uh, that this church was not up to v- some things which are not very good. And they were letting themselves down. And more importantly than letting themselves down, they were also letting the Lord down. They were dishonoring uh, God with their lives. And then we get to chapter 7. In chapter 7, the whole letter goes on a new direction. Paul is now starting to answer some of the questions that the Corinthians themselves had written to him about. And the first question in chapter 7 was the question about relationships. And Paul deals with that in a wonderfully down-to-earth, quite relevant way for the people of Corinth. And then in chapter chapter 8, we have the second question. And the question that they then ask in in chapter 8 doesn't at face value appear to have a huge amount of relevance for us today. It's certainly not as relevant as the question about relationships. And the question they had for Paul was, is it right for Christians to eat meat which has been previously offered as a sacrifice to idols? Now, many people reading this for the first time will be excused for thinking that Paul's words don't have a huge deal to say to us today. They might have been relevant for Christians there in Corinth, in Greece, 2,000 years ago, with all of its idolatry. But, you know, that sounds as if it has zero relevance to us today. And people like us in the UK living in the 21st century. And talking about idols and food sacrifice to them seems utterly remote to most people reading this today. And worse still, Paul spends three chapters talking about this stuff. 73 whole verses talking about idol worship and food offered to idols. You might be glad that this is the third and the final week on this particular subject in 1 Corinthians. Having said that, if we delve a little bit deeper beyond these words, you know, at face value, we can see that they have a huge relevance to our lives today because there are principles here and values which actually transcend first century uh, Greek world. And they speak powerfully to us today. And we're going to be drawing those this morning out of the text. Uh, maybe that uh, some of you have not been around in the last couple of weeks, so 
Dan has been speaking. Excellent teaching indeed. Uh, I want to just, for a moment, go over some of that background. Otherwise, you won't have a clue this morning what this is all about. Corinth, this ancient city of Corinth, was full of pagan altars. And their culture was that they would come and make a sacro, uh, sacrificial offering of meat to some idol in its temple. And the meat then was sold on to the marketplace, or it was taken home to eat. And the practice was, was commonplace throughout Corinth. So if you were in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and you were ever invited to a wedding, or to a civil reception, or a tradesman's guild, probably most of these events took place in a temple of some heathen god. Or if you were invited to someone's home for a meal, the meat in all probability would have been previously offered to one of the idols in the temple as an act of worship. Now this caused some Christians some problems. You know, some of the Christians in Corinth, they were down-to-earth pragmatists. And they said something along these lines. Hey, this is good meat. There's nothing wrong with it. Idols, they're only blocks of wood and blocks of stone. They're not real. So eating this good meat surely can't do me anything wrong. And that's the way that they took it, some of them. Others of them had come from pagan backgrounds. And the idea of eating meat that had been previously offered to idols was absolutely awful to them. Their consciences wouldn't allow it at all. And then when they looked at their fellow Christians, and some of them were eating meat that had been offered to idols, they thought that was absolutely awful. And they couldn't get their heads around that. They were offended by that. So that's why they wrote to Paul, who's right? Shall we do it? Shall we not do it? And that's the question that they asked Paul. And Paul starts by saying to them, idols are not real. There's only one God. He's the creator. He's the maker of everything. And there's one Lord Jesus Christ. And I can imagine that those who were the pragmatists in ancient Corinth were thinking, yeah, we got it right. Paul's on our side. But Paul doesn't stop there. He carries on from there. And he says something like this. You are right. An idol is nothing. You've got a freedom to eat whatever you want to eat. But, but, in doing so, if you somehow cause another weaker Christian to stumble, because of your actions, someone maybe from a pagan background, then it would be better never to eat meat ever again. And what he's telling them here is, yes, it was their right to do that, but not to stand on their rights, to think of others, to be sensitive to others' needs, to their misgivings and to their weaknesses. And Paul says something quite wonderful. He said, Christ died for these people. Christ died. He gave up his life for these people. So won't you be prepared at least to give up a dinner opportunity for the same people that Christ gave his life for? You see, in our day, we hear an awful lot about rights, don't we? People demanding their rights and entitlements and so forth. And not so much about responsibilities. But Paul, yeah, 
He speaks quite the opposite, really. And he talks about giving up rights for the sake of others. Then in chapter 9, Paul essentially says, if you want a good example of someone who has actually given up their, their rights, he could have used Christ, couldn't he? You know, the one who laid aside his majesty, as we sing in our church, gave up everything for me. But he doesn't use Christ on this occasion. He uses himself. And uh, Paul says, look at me. And Paul provides us with a, a wonderful autobiographical chapter that we get a wonderful, fascinating insight into this, this man, Paul. And he says that he gave up his rights to make a living from the gospel. And he could have received a, a salary for his missionary work. But he recognizes that that might have actually caused some problems. People in Corinth might have seen what was going on and accused him of being a money grabber. And that would have then disqualified his message to them. But he laid aside those rights in order that he didn't get in the way of other people becoming Christians. And that reminds me a little bit of Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham, when he came to uh, Haringey meetings in 1954, and uh, the first time that uh, Britain had come across this uh, great American evangelist, many people were suspicious of him. They thought this American evangelist is coming to the shores of the UK in order to take money from us. You know, he's lining his own pockets with all of this. He's speaking to thousands upon thousands of people in football stadia that were filled throughout the land. And some people believed that he was doing that to fill his own pockets. But Billy Graham, very wisely, chose not to take a single penny from his ministry in England, receiving a very basic salary from his American Baptist church. And he chose to do that because then he wouldn't get in the way of the message that he was proclaiming. And Paul, if you can understand what I've just said about Billy Graham, you will understand chapter 9. And that's what Paul is saying. Um, when Julie was working as a, a teacher in a local school, each year I got invited to the staff Christmas meal. <sighs> Many people who know me you know that I'm not a party animal. I, I'm, I feel a little bit like a fish out of water. I never really enjoy these, um, these occasions, you know, and when a f people are having a few too many and then they start dancing, if you can call it dancing, you know, and it's uh, sort of Macarena, you know, sort of, and all, all of this, uh, and Y-M-C-A, and yeah, and I, I'm not even going to go for the birdie song, all right? I'm really not going to go there. It's not my cup of tea. But I continue to attend each year, and the reason that I attended those, those occasions was for the sake of the gospel. You see, I was perfectly free not to attend, but I chose to give up my freedom because I wanted to get alongside others. Now, Julie's colleagues are very nice people, and they need to hear about Jesus, you see, I, I think that many people have a very strange view of, of, of Christian ministers, of vicars, of priests, of pastors, and they see them as super spiritual or strange or rather weird. I didn't disappoint them there, I suppose. <laughs> but I was on my best behavior, and I did my best to act normal. 
Okay, okay, I've got, I've got feelings, you know. I didn't wear any clerical vestments or dog collar, no Jesus sandals, not even a tank top. I didn't line my pockets full of evangelistic literature, and I didn't take my NIV study Bible with me to the Christmas do. It gets in the way when you're doing the birdie song, actually. But you see, the point that I'm making here is that I was free to not go to the party. My preference would have been to stay at home with a glass of red wine and a a good book. But I gave up that freedom in order to get alongside others for the sake of Jesus. And I wanted to show people that pastors are, you know, they've not got two heads. Uh, Thanks. And that is Paul's main point here in chapter 9 when he tells them, and we quoted this verse uh, last week, that he tells them that he's become all things to all men so that by all possible means he might save some. Now we're moving on to chapter 10. Sorry, that was quite a long introduction, but as I say, if you weren't aware of what's happening here, you wouldn't have a clue understanding this today. Not really, because the three chapters fit together. And the subject here hasn't changed. And up to now, Paul has been saying that we need to make sure that by exercising our freedoms in Christ, we don't hurt others. And that is the focus of chapter 8 and chapter 9. What's, the chapter, what's chapter 10 all about then? The chapter 10 focus is that we need to make sure that by exercising our freedoms in Christ, we don't hurt ourselves. So chapter 8 and 9, that we don't hurt others. And chapter 10, that we don't hurt ourselves. Now you see these Christians, these pragmatists in uh, Corinth, the ones who thought that they were superior and that they had no problems with these things, the ones who thought of themselves as rather broad-minded and broad-shouldered, they went to the ceremonies of pag- in pagan temples and they believed that they wouldn't be affected at all morally or spiritually. And their view went something like this. We can go into the pagan temples for civic receptions and weddings and we can enjoy a meal with our workmates at the Temple of Aphrodite, not forgetting that the Temple of Aphrodite had also had a thousand sacred uh, prostitutes plying their trade for the sake of the goddess of love. And they were saying, we can go there, we can enjoy a meal, but we're not going to join in with our idolatry. We're not going to join in with all that immorality. We're strong in faith. We're not going to be compromised here. Well, that was their view. So what does Paul say? Verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's what he says. And I think that that is a message for the 21st century as well as the 1st century, don't you? If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And sometimes our strengths can be our weaknesses. Dan was reading from the message earlier, and I love the message translation of that verse. Don't be naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God-confidence. The Bible is full of examples of people who were overconfident in their own ability. Probably the most obvious one was Peter. When he came up to Jesus and says, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And yet, he denied Jesus three times. Proverbs 16, 18. 
Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So how then does Paul encourage them from being proud and self-confident? He does that by telling them a story. We all like a good story. They like a good story, and Paul tells them a story. He tells them the story of the nation of Israel. I was told that when Oliver Cromwell was preparing the education for his son Richard, he said, I would have him learn a little history. That was his comment. It was a great comment. I would have him learn a little history. When I was in school, I was absolutely rubbish at history. I hated it. I was more a sort of science person. But over the years, I've come to recognize how wonderful history is. And that's good advice from Paul. You know, I very often read um, uh, Christian biographies. I read of the great men and women of God, uh, those who have gone by. I read of their successes. I read of their failures. I realize that they are made of the same flesh, frail flesh as me. And Paul here encourages the Corinthians to look back. And in the first ten verses of the chapter that Tim just read to us, 1 Corinthians 10 all the way up to verse 10, he reminds them of what happened to the nation of Israel. And these verses are a little bit difficult to understand, actually. And if that's the first time that you've read those verses ever this morning, you're probably scratching your head thinking, what's this all about? Because Paul is particularly metaphorical here in the way that he writes, and his figurative language can be a little bit confusing. But the bottom line is that it's a very, very simple message. And Paul says, and many of you who have been Christians a while would know this story, that the Israelites, they escaped from Egypt where they were slaves. And they escaped under the leadership of Moses, and it was God who delivered them. They had no money, they had no army, they had no weapons, but they had God on their side. And God led them by the cloud and through the Red Sea opening up. And following this, those of you that know your Old Testament, God provided for them daily manna from heaven as they went through the desert wanderings for 40 years and provided them with water from a rock. And Paul's point is, even though they had all of this stuff, these spiritual blessings, these privileges, they still turned away from God. Of the three million of them who were released from captivity in Egypt, of those over the age of 20, only two of them eventually made it to the promised land. And their names were Caleb and Joshua. The rest died on the way. And Paul's message in verse 6 and 7, the New Living Translation, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. In other words, what Paul was saying, learn from their mistakes, learn from history, make sure that you don't do the same things. And we haven't got time you know, for a Bible study on this this morning. Then in verses 7 to 10, Paul lists four of their faults. And yes, if we were having a Bible study, we could go into all of this and look into the background of this. Verse 7, the problem was idolatry. Verse 8, immorality. Verse 9, putting the Lord to the test. Verse 10, their problem was grumbling. And then in verse 11, he tells them much the same again, that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. 
Right. Then we get to verse 12. And I'm sure that verses 12 and 13 have been underlined in most of your Bibles or colored in. These are well-known verses. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. How many of you have done that? Underline those. Yeah, quite a few of you. I can see you smiling. So why does Paul say this? Why does he say it at this time in this context, apart from it being true? He is speaking to those in Corinth who were the seemingly strong Christians who felt that they were strong enough to visit places um, of pagan worship where it wasn't only steak on the menu, if you get my drift, and not be tempted. So they thought that they were strong enough to do that. I was thinking about this the other day. That would be a little bit like one of you guys coming home from work tomorrow and saying to your wife, I'm off out with the lads from the office tonight. It's the boss's birthday party. We're going to celebrate. And your wife says to you, okay, that's fine. Where are you going? And you tell your wife, oh, um, uh, I think they're uh, off to a lap dancing club tonight. And you can see your wife's disapproval in her face. And you then carry on and say, I'm okay. I'm quite strong in my faith. It won't affect me. Promise not to look. How many of you could promise not to look? <laughs> Come on, be honest. I couldn't. This sounds a little bit like Bill Clinton to me, you know, the guy who admitted to smoking pot, but he didn't inhale. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> sounds a li- little bit like that, actually. Another example. You know, if you've had someone, you've, you, you've had problem with alcohol abuse in the past, and then you decide to go to the town centre with all your mates on a Saturday night, staying out to the wee hours, saying, I'm okay with this, I've moved on, I don't drink anymore. Or a young person who's perhaps had in the past a cocaine habit, choosing to hang around with his old friends, those that used to supply him the drug. You see, I'm sure we could give many, many other examples of this, but it would be playing with fire. It would be utter foolishness. And Paul reminds them here of all the blessings that Israel had, that they had many encounters with God, that God provided for them daily when they were in the desert, yet they still messed up. And Paul's point is, why should you think you won't mess up too? They weren't exempt, and neither are we. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful but you don't fall. Okay, let's be more practical again. How can we be careful? What is it that we can do to safeguard ourselves from giving in to temptation? I think there's a number of things that we can do. Firstly, we need to own up and to say that our own strength and ability and will to resist temptation is not good enough. 
remember what James says in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And we need to learn to live for God. And when God has his rightful place in our lives, it becomes far easier to say no to the things that we need to say no to. You got that? It's really important. When God has his rightful place in our lives, it is far easier for us to say no to the things that we need to say no to. Secondly, we need to fill our minds and our hearts with the scriptures. You see, the scriptures are there, not so that we can just, you know, sort of win Bible, Bible quizzes or to have a great big knowledge of all this stuff, but it's to change our lives. Thirdly, we need to be aware of those areas of vulnerability in our own lives. And one person's area of vulnerability may not be the same as the next person's area of vulnerability. Fourthly, we need to recognize that none of us are exempt from temptation. We're all in the same boat. There are no such things as temptation-free zones. It doesn't happen. We all get tempted, and we all get tempted in different ways. And temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, as we are, yet was without sin. It's the giving in to temptation very often leads to that sin. Fifthly, we need to remember that God is faithful. He promises not to allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear and will provide a way of escape. In other words, don't forget that you're not alone. God is with you. He is on your side. His spirit lives in you and will enable you to overcome. As someone once said, you might be going through the furnace, but remember that there's someone with his hand on the thermostat. One American church minister recognized his own weakness, and his weakness was particularly the opposite sex. And he made out a checklist of how his life would change if he ever gave in to temptation. His, he, he reviews all the consequences of what would happen to him. And I'm going to read to you what this guy wrote. And all I can say, it's, it's very, very sobering. He wrote, When I feel particularly vulnerable to sexual temptation... I find it helpful to review what effects my actions could have. And then he makes a list. Firstly, grieving the Lord who redeemed me. Dragging his sacred name in the mud. One day having to look to Jesus, the righteous judge, in the face and give account for my actions. If I succumb to temptation, I would be inflicting hurt on Nancy, my best friend and loyal wife. I would lose Nancy's respect and love. I would hurt my beloved daughters, Karina and Angie. I would destroy my example and credibility with my children, nullifying both present and future efforts to teach them to obey God. They would say, why listen to a man? who betrayed mum and us. If my blindness should continue or my wife unable to forgive, I might lose my wife and children forever. I would cause shame to my family, 
my daughters would ask, why isn't daddy a pastor anymore? I would lose self-respect. I would create a form of guilt awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, would I be able to forgive myself? I would form memories and flashbacks that could plague future intimacy with my wife. I would waste years of ministry training and experience, maybe permanently. I would forfeit the effect of years of witnessing to my father and reinforcing his distrust for ministers that has only just begun to soften by my example, but would harden, perhaps permanently, because of my immorality. I would undermine the faithful example and hard work of other Christians in the community. I would bring great pleasure to Satan, the enemy of God, and all that is good. I would heap judgment and endless endless difficulty on the person with whom I committed adultery. I might possibly bear the physical consequences of such diseases as gonorrhea, syphilis, herpes, or AIDS perhaps infecting Nancy, or in the case of AIDS, even causing her premature death. I might cause a pregnancy with serious personal and financial implications. I would bring shame and hurt to my friends, especially those I led to Christ and those that I now disciple. I would invoke shame and lifelong embarrassment upon myself. I read that list the other day and I just wanted to sit down in a darkened room. That is heavy stuff, isn't it? That is heavy stuff. But it's accurate. It's accurate. And can I say this morning, can I say this morning, that if any of you have ever considered an extramarital affair or been tempted in that area, those will be some of the consequences They will. The only light relief I got when I read that, having read those very impactful words, was I noticed that the pastor's name was Randy. (laughs) That made me smile. It's great to have American friends with us this morning. Why can't you guys just see it, that that is not a good name to give to your kids? (laughs) That is not a good name. But you could say that this guy, you know, he was Randy by name, but he didn't want to be Randy by nature as well. Okay. That's hard-eating stuff, isn't it? But all of us say, there go we but for the grace of God. Coming back to Paul. It's interesting that immediately following what Paul says there in verse 13, when he says, when you are tempted that God will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it, he then goes straight away into verse 14, surprise, surprise, after verse 13. I I know I'm too good. And he says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. There's a very important lesson here. You see, God's way of escape that he's speaking about in verse 13 was through them doing something themselves. You know, God doesn't promise to send an angel. 
He doesn't promise to zap us away from that area of temptation through astral projection. But God's way of escape is for us to just get out of that place. To move away from others who lead us into temptation. To move that computer out of the bedroom into the family room. To make a decision not to drink excessively. Or if that is a problem, not to drink at all. Not to allow yourself to be in that place where you're vulnerable. Isn't godly wisdom so practical? And sometimes we can be so super spiritual about this stuff. The next section, oh my word, is that the time? Sorry. Let's move on quickly. This next section, verses 14 to 22, Paul explains there that anyone who has fellowship with Christ, which is symbolized by the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, can never partake in uh, idol worship because, verse 20, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. Now, for those who've been here for the last three weeks, I know what you're thinking. You are thinking, isn't Paul contradicting himself here? Because what he said in chapter 8, verse 4, what he said is that we know that an idol is nothing at all, but now he is saying that the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. So how can we explain this apparent contradiction? Well, Paul makes it clear that he stands with those in the church who said that heathen gods did not exist. He stands very firmly with them. But he believed that demons and evil spirits did exist. And actually it was the demons and the evil spirits that were behind the worship in these pagan temples of those false gods. So what's the application here for us today? Again, I was just trying to get my head around this this week. And I thought of this, that over the years in ministry, I have come across many people who are just like the members of the Corinthian church. That they were actually interacting with demons even without being aware that they were doing so. Some people, at times of bereavement, have attempted to make contact with the other side, with their loved ones. And they have attempted that through mediums or through spiritualists or through Ouija boards. And many have done this in all innocence and often out of grief, often to fill the emptiness in their lives. But behind those practices were real spiritual forces, the world of demons, much in the way that behind the heathen gods who were nothing, there were real evil spirits. And I know, even as I say this this morning, that some of you might listen to what I'm saying and you, you think that this might sound incredibly far-fetched or even um, melodramatic or medieval in my thinking, in my worldview. But the things that I'm talking about, I have witnessed many, many, many times And I remain utterly convinced that anyone who dabbles with such things leaves their lives open to great hurt. Okay, Paul is now coming into land. And uh, he anticipates this argument coming back from the strong Christians there. And these strong Christians would say to Paul, Hey, Paul, but everything's permissible to us. Surely, we're free to do this. Everything's permissible. And Paul says, okay, but not everything is beneficial. 
Not everything is constructive. I might be able to do things, but I need to ask, am I going to hurt others? I need to ask, am I going to hurt myself through this? And then Paul's summary statement. I say summary statement because he's been talking about this now for three whole chapters. And as I say, this is where he he finishes off. So let's read those verses. Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered to a sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm talking and referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in a meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for. Now, some of you might be asking, why couldn't Paul be a little bit more straightforward? Have you ever read Paul and thought thought that? Can't you be a little bit more straightforward, Paul? You know, what are you talking about here, man? I've often come across that. You see, these, Christ, these Christians in Corinth just asked him a stri- simple, straightforward question. They just asked him, can we eat meat which has been previously offered to idols? And Paul, 73 verses later, (laughs) is still talking about it. But what is Paul showing us by all of this? He is showing us something really important. And I'm, I'm nearly done. Living by faith, which are what Christians we are called to do, is not the same as living by rules. They're different. Living under grace is not the same as living under law. And instead of giving the simple yes or no, he provides them and us with guiding principles that we can adopt for a whole range of circumstances that we're not sure about in our lives. You see, Paul himself might have appeared to be inconsistent on times. You know, there were times when he was with the Gentiles, he would just eat what they were eating. There were times when he was with the Jews, he would just eat kosher food and eat what they were eating. But he wasn't inconsistent. That is, he wasn't any more inconsistent than a weather vane might appear to be inconsistent. First pointing in one direction, then pointing in another direction. But you know what? A weather vane is always consistent. It's always consistent because it always points in the direction the wind is blowing. And Paul was consistent too because he was always pointing in the direction of loving God and loving others. And listen to his wonderful, wonderful summary statement here. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So what is our take home? What's our take home today? Uh, This is a phrase that Dan uses. You know, I've always spoken about, you know, sort of how, how do we apply this? But Dan's got this great phrase. You know, what's the take-home? And what is our take-home today? It's this. 
In Christ we are free. And everything is permissible for us. But we need to qualify that by asking, will that lead to our freedom or will it lead to slavery? Chapter 6, verse 12. Will it make me a stumbling block to others or a stepping stone for others? Chapter 8, verse 13. Will it build me up or tear me down? Chapter 10, verse 23. Will the thing that I do honor Christ? Chapter 10, verse 31. And will it help to win the lost to Christ or turn others away? Chapter 10, verse 33. Good questions to ask, which will act as a guide to living a healthy and balanced Christian life. So Paul says, let's imitate him as he imitates Christ.